0: It's the Mike Yosinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another Mike Missanelli podcast, the World Series edition. We've been trying to do a podcast every day as the Phil's get ready to take on the Houston Astros tonight. Of course, we're sponsored by the great people at Bet Rivers. This is our episode number 17, and it's a pretty special one today because we're going to tap into the mind of a man who played on a championship team here in Philadelphia. Uh, He, of course, is a 2008 World Championship Series Bullpen stalwart, fourteen-year major league career. He pitched in four hundred and fifty-six games. That's a, a, a tremendous body of work. Uh, and you hear him periodically uh, on uh, Phil's radio broadcast as a very good analyst. He is, of course, right-handed pitcher. Chad Durbin joining us. Chad, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Mike. You know, this is a fun stretch of time for Phillies fans, right? Former former players or not, this is a really fun time to be uh, a Philly sports fan and uh You know, I'm sure we'll get there at some point, but Thursday, next Thursday, if they go back to Houston, the Eagles are playing on Thursday night. Like advantage Phillies fans, right?
0: Yeah, that's a good road trip if they hang in there. Um, So uh, this is very interesting because you do play with a lot of teams in Major League Baseball. But um, I I guess uh, every team carries a piece of your heart. And I got to think that the Phillies carry a major piece of your heart considering what you went through and you pitched in one of the golden eras of this franchise.
1: Yeah, I came in to um, replace Adam Eaton as the fifth starter. Uh, I'd started for a very good Detroit Tigers team in 07. And in 06, I was trying to, I mean, I really thought that might be the last year of my career. um, And kind of just showed up early, stayed late, um, played around with a new arsenal of pitches. And then when I got into Philly, I remember going there in 07. And our Detroit team was good. I think we won three of four. And but I remember looking around Citizens Bank Park. I remember looking at the players on the other roster. I remember thinking that team's really good, they're really good and they're young. Uh, I think you know, the core of the team was kind of running at like 26, 27, 28 years old at the time. And I was the same age, 29 years old or whatever it was. I remember thinking, man, this would be a great place to play. And I was advised against it by former Phillies, um, former and former managers, and everything. And I said, you know what, I don't care what you think, I need a big market. Uh, to challenge me. I want booze when I stink. And I found them. And and I just loved that atmosphere. I talked to Jim Tomey about the difference between playing in the Midwest and playing in in a place like Philly. And he's like, oh, you can't take a minute off. You can take days off playing in Cleveland and Kansas City. You can't take a day off in Philly. And that's, I think that was what propelled the group, talent, a bunch of talent, a bunch of guys that are potential Hall of Famers and future Hall of Famers playing on the same team and then adding some pieces. And I was a guy that was very average or below average up to that point in my career and kind of took off in in being moved from a starter into a reliever's role. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to get outs and help a team that could score a lot of runs, score runs in the latter part of the game.
0: So it's interesting. You you kind of welcome that kind of atmosphere along with some other guys in that club. There are a lot of guys that don't. In fact, well, that's why you hear about Philadelphia from outsiders. Oh, it's a terrible place to play, and the fans are really tough. But what, what is it about – what was the appeal of that to you?
1: Well, I'm, I'm hard on myself, and um, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we have LSU football down here, and I can tell you it is they're – they're cut from the same cloth. I'm booing 18-year-olds for throwing pick sixes in my living room. You know, I'm like, what's this guy doing? Who recruits this guy? Well, I'm doing the same thing that a Phillies fan uh, will do from the second deck or the third deck or the front row when I go 2-0 on the four hole with guys in scoring position. Like, what is this guy doing? Why is he here? Go somewhere else. I didn't pay money to come in here and watch this crap. So I I completely relate. I think that at that point in my career, I was in my – like tenth or eleventh year of pro baseball, so I had seen and heard it all, and I just welcomed it. And I think you had the right guys on the field. You know, the mix of Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley and their personalities, kind of yin and yang uh, for sports fans in Philly, and then Howard and and just the rest of the crew. And then having the the bullpen anchored by Brad, who was perfect that year. Brad Lidge was forty eight of forty eight or whatever, and bringing in guys that you know could really do a good job at left, right, left, right, finish with J.C. Romero, Scott Ayer, myself. Madsen was not good early in the season. And as I ran out of gas completely, he came on and was strong. And I think that I guess the collective, you know, the group as a whole kind of embraced the Philly fan base. and, And I just I loved it. I mean, I loved them falling off the, you know, off their seats, yelling at us, good, bad or ugly.
0: Uh, all right, let's start. We're going to come back to that because I really want to talk more about that at uh, 2018, what made him click, because I think like, the, you, you referred to chemistry. I think the chemistry is really resonating right now. But uh, you saw them a lot this year. I saw them a lot. The whole fan base saw them a lot. People weren't really plugged into this team. Uh, and all of a sudden, this transformation has happened. And I'm curious, from, from your standpoint, I, th- I think you referred to it as the uh, calm seas and then water found its level. But it's not as simple as that. So what what changed here to make this team a World Series team?
1: Well, I think if Joe had stayed or not, I think this team plays better baseball than 22 and 29 through that point in the year. But I think what happened was you had you know some some veteran leadership um, you know continue to be that. But you had, you know, a manager and a staff kind of embrace some of the young guys, Boehm. Um, you know, you, you had Stott, you had some guys, you know, Beerling, where it's like, you know what, let's go let them play baseball. Uh, and and when they have good games, it's going to help us. When they have bad games, you know, we'll pick them up. Um, I think that the Joe, who is fantastic, I mean, like we can't say much bad about Joe Girardi other than that this year didn't work out for him, but I think the staff as a whole, and I think the players as a whole, the clubhouse kind of relaxed just a little bit. And because and it, it starts to get tight in Philadelphia when you pay this much money for a team and you've got Dombrowski, you know, kind of picking and choosing who he's going to bring in and you're not playing well. And I think as they relaxed and started to play good baseball, you know, it, it happens. The change of leadership sometimes is, and it was the right time. You got to give Dave Dombrowski a huge, huge uh, piece of this and that he just cut bait at the right time. And he cut bait with a guy who's going to be a potential Hall of Fame manager. Uh, so I think it was that was the difference. I saw the bullpen form. I, I, I saw him manage the bullpen really well. I mean, the whole story early on was this guy can't throw three days in a row. This guy can't do this. This guy can't do that. Nobody wanted to hear what they can't do. How about what they can do? And and that's what I saw start happening. Is I'm going to throw these guys on these days. They're going to do well. But the story he just controlled the narrative. And you know how he, he, t- Rob's not a loud guy. He is calm. He is quiet. But when he speaks, they listen. And I think that the bullpen, you know, yeah, they, they they threw well, and causation is part of it. You know, they threw well, which helps. Um, you know, you show me a, a bullpen that's getting out, I'll show you chemistry. And uh, kind of the same thing kind of uh, existed with the clubhouse. I mean, you, you win some games that you're not supposed to because you throw the sixth, seventh, and eighth inning um, with zero or one runs. So you give your big offense a chance to go score some runs, and that's exactly what they did.
0: I, so I've, I've been a baseball game for a really long time, played in college. I've studied baseball, and, and I know that baseball is such an individualistic sport. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's you against the pitcher. It's you making a play. It's you making a pitch. But somehow th- this this team chemistry has gotten involved in here. And I, I hear you say that the dugouts a mosh pit when they did. So to, to explain to me how in an individualistic sport, ke- team chemistry can rear up.
1: Well, what it is is you have a couple of – and leadership isn't always the guy standing on a, a, a table screaming at everybody. It's not always the quiet guy, you know, timing up, uh, sitting next to somebody and asking them how they're doing, um, where they're at. Um, it's kind of a, a, a collection of all those things. And and that's what when you'd walk in the clubhouse, which was uncomfortable for me as a former player walking in there and maybe having to talk to uh, – do an interview with a guy, I got much, much better at it. But I, I was my eyes were open. I was looking at what was going on, who was talking to who, how how it was relating to their personality in the clubhouse. How did it relate to their personality as they were playing? And as an individual, it, it you feel like you're on an island and you're almost naked when it's just about you. But you also want to be selfish in that you better do your job because number one, as a team, it helps. But number two, you're looking for you know another year on the contract. You're looking for you know some security going forward. So. It's okay. I mean, it, you need guys to be a little narcissistic, but not a lot. You need guys to have a little swagger, but not too much. You need guys to be a little selfish in that individual sport that plays out. And over the course of the year, and this is where I really like the playoffs this year, is you've seen them go get their numbers. I'm gonna go do me. I'm gonna go get my 35 homers and my OPS is gonna be this. But now in the in in the postseason, you're seeing a guy like Gene Segura stick his butt in the dugout, throw his bat at a ball and hit a ground ball and run score because he put a ball in play. I don't know if he does that in May. I don't know if Nick Castellanos is willing to self-deprecate, you know, in, in May or, or June when he's struggling. But in the playoffs, it's like, I don't care. I just want to go win. And I think that's where the chemistry starts to really show up. It didn't show up as much in August and September. So
0: it's kind it of learned started. behavior uh, uh, as, the, yeah. as the season went on. Uh, and what do you also need are guys to pick you up? Like, if you fail, you're oh, thinking yeah. about the failure. But if a guy picks you up, it, it comes right out of your head. And th- this Phillies team has had that in spades. I mean, you, you go down the lineup, it doesn't look like it's a great-hitting lineup, but Stott's been a monster in battling it and throwing a, a ball near Marsh with an unexpected three-run homer. Those guys are picking up guys that – that haven't performed at the top on in a particular game.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gene Segura, who I just mentioned, he, he's he's won a batting title, and he's your seven hole. When you finally get to Gene and Marsh or Stott or whomever down at the end, you're kind of mentally, you're losing your focus. You're like, okay, I can relax for a couple of hitters before Schwarber steps back up, and you make mistakes. And if those guys can get on with one or no outs, and you've got to face... Schwarber, Reese, JT, Bryce. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm getting tired saying it, thinking about how would I get those guys out and not give up runs. And that's been the key to every team that's done well in the playoffs. If you're just kind of watching collectively, the seven, eight, nine holes get on base, damage is done.
0: Uh, there's a story floating around right now, and it's uh, uh the Schwarber calling for the karaoke night in a hotel ballroom in St. Louis. Now I'm thinking of your team. You had too many hard asses on your team to pull off a karaoke night. I think your talent was what what won over. But like, how like that seems so. You know, like, I don't know, Harry, Harry High School-ish. But, yeah, but, you know, but somehow this karaoke night brought some kind of looseness to it. Uh, it, it. Talk to me about that.
1: Well, the temperature of the room, Schwarber is really good. I mean, he's a great interview. I'm sure you, if you haven't had him a bunch of times, he gives great sound bites. He is in tune with what you're trying to do as the interviewer. And he's also in tune with every guy in the clubhouse. So he knew they needed something. And, and look, 2022 is a whole different world than 2008 was in so many different ways. Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and social media being what it is, there, there's a different personality to these, these guys. And that's something I've had to learn because I was brought up by the guys that played in the 80s and 90s when I showed up in 1999 in the big leagues. It was I played at Old Tiger Stadium in my debut and I think about that and, and just Schwarber really reading the room and saying, you know what, if you don't want to be involved, that's fine. Don't come. But we're going to do this. And we, we just need to shake loose a little bit. And uh, he just he's a fantastic leader. And, and I have no doubt that the rest of that group kind of jumped in. And now you see the extension of it in their postgame celebrations now um, that that's obviously what was going on in the ballroom.
0: Yeah and and uh Ranger Suarez won the contest by the way singing some latino song that probably nobody ever understood but he still wins it right
1: Yes absolutely <laughs> put it out there see what happens
0: <laughs> All right let's uh let's talk I want to talk about Harper for a second because uh and I was making this point in an earlier podcast this week when you play with a guy like that who is so focused and and such a baseball grinder and allows no quarter for for anything Teams look at that, players look at that and say, I, I can't slack because this guy is this. Is that pretty accurate?
1: Yeah, you don't want to let that guy down. You also know that he is working as hard or harder than you. And that's leadership. You know, you, you do need guys that communicate well, but you also need the Roy Hallidays and the Chase Utleys um, and the Mike Sweeneys uh, I played with in Kansas City as a young guy. He was there before I was there. You know, um, in the weight room, watching film, you know, um, snarling at, you know, video like like Chase would do. Uh, you'd get there at noon for a 7 o'clock game and he has two plates of food in front of him. He's sweating and he's watching the relievers that are about to face him for the next week. And that's leadership. And I think that's what Harper maybe was misunderstood. Um, you know, he was when he was with the Nationals, you know, maybe the wrong mix of guys. I wish Mark DeRosa, who I love. Was there longer with uh, with him with the Nationals? I think he was there in twelve. Uh, Lidge and I were there, you know, randomly. I got uh, last day of the year. I went to the Braves, but that's the that's what, maybe a little misunderstood because of the hard focus. But then again, he's been he's been under the microscope since he was thirteen. So is he a thirty year old right now, or is he more like a forty year old in a thirty year old's body? Um, and I think you see a little bit of that with embracing the Philadelphia fan base kind of under some, which as soon as he put those green shoes on and he, you know, took the fanatic in mean, it's hard. Look, it it maybe isn't what I would do because I'm older, but man, it's hard to argue with that. He's not all in 13 year deal with no trade clause. You say no more you're in. So I think I've, I've really come to appreciate him. I saw him as a 19 year old um, faced him a little bit early on. And it was easy to just throw a ball below the zone, let him swing through it. But Bryce has become, I can't picture him in a Nats uniform anymore. You know, all I can picture him is is as a Philly, which is kind of how it should be right now.
0: Yeah, he he's um, he gives that same vibe as Utley, yet with a lot more personality. I think. <laughs> let, let me tell you a quick story about Utley. So, I'm watching the game. It's 2008 season. I'm watching the game on TV, and he uh, he got a base hit. He broke his bat, and so he hit a, a kind of a soft line drive that fell in. And he, he was on first base, and I saw him grimacing. And he's like, he's really grimacing. And and so I was, the guys came home and I go into the locker room the next day. And I wanted to talk to him about that as a student at hitting. I wanted to talk about why he was grimacing. And my assumption was that he didn't barrel it. So I go up to him, I go, uh, Chase, I saw you were like really disappointed on that. hit you got with the broken bat. Was that because you didn't barrel it? And then I just throw in, or just because you broke the bat. And he looks at me and he stares into space for like 10 seconds. And he says, uh, no, I think because I broke the bat, now I have to order some new ones. And
1: I'm going, what, what happened? Like he was like, like he just wouldn't allow his personality to take over. No, and he's got a good one too. That's what, that's what, that was kind of the, you had Jimmy who was almost more personality than we could all, you know, kind of deal with, you know, he's fantastic too. But then you had Chase. And I, I guess the value there is when he did bring it out, it, the room stopped. Yeah. Uh, you would do the same thing. If you're standing around him, you got 20 guys around him, girls, and and you ask him a question and he turns into you know this personality, it would be fun. But then again, it would be so out of character. You'd be like, is he on something? You know? Yeah,
0: he was a very strange guy to 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 get a beat on. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, let's look at, at now the matchups in this series. Um, here's what I I think has to happen. Because they've got Nolan Wheeler going, they've got to at least win one, and I almost think maybe two. Uh, because the, if, the longer the series goes on, the depth of the Astros pitching staff is, is going to play. Um, so uh, ha, how do you see this right now with these first two games in Houston?
1: Well, I think that game one all by itself is huge. Um, Verlander, he had his hiccup. and He doesn't have a great 0-6 with like a 6 ERA in, in, in World Series games. But – He's a Hall of Famer, and he's he's been phenomenal this year. He had his hiccup. He's locked in now. And although we hit the fastball well, he's got a really good one. Um, so I think game one, Aaron threw well last time he was in Houston, uh, six and two-thirds shutout, whatever it was. and uh, Perfect I game think,
0: through six, yeah.
1: Yeah, perfect game through six. Um, typically us Louisiana kids, we come down to Houston and think we're home, and we throw well. Uh, hopefully that continues to happen. I was out in San Diego when he faced his brother, and it just – you Know hard to pull against either one of them. I was pulling more for Aaron, but it just didn't work out. I'll get back to the subject at hand here. Uh, I think this game is going to be you know a three to two type game, it could go either way. But if if we leave there, one you know, why don't you want to split it? Yeah, but like you said, two wins going against who they're going to throw against us three, four, five you know, you got to think that they're going to win two or three in Philly. And I know nobody wants to hear that, but that's kind of the reality. And if you don't win, you win two that puts you back kind of going back to Houston and needing to win games but that's that's kind of how I see it I think Wheeler is going to be Wheeler and give us a chance to win I think they're going to be the runs are going to be at a premium you're gonna have some solo home runs hit uh but yeah if we go two and oh back to Philly we might go back to Houston down three to two you know so that's you so these games enormously yeah, you, important.
0: you can't do that and, and like I say if you split and 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 you win. Uh, I think the Phillies are gonna to have to win this in six. They Win two or three in Philly, and then have to win Game Six because they got Wheeler going in Game Six. So I think that's the formula. Uh, you know, I, I I listen to a lot of you guys, uh, the, the former uh, players, managers, general managers. Steve Phillips is, did a, uh, uh, a measuring of each position, and and naturally the Astros come out ahead. I think the Phillies may win two positions: the DH and and catcher. Uh, right. maybe, you know, like maybe, I don't know Altuve's not hitting, maybe this is where he gets thrown in there. Uh, but it, it, that really doesn't matter in a world series as the Phillies have proven, you know, they, they won 87 games. They come in, they've caught fire. They're a legitimate world series team now, whether they're uh, overmatched by Houston's talent or not. Right.
1: Yes. You no, know, I think, uh, when you go position to position, I mean, the Astros ended up being, I think third or fourth in outfield defense, Third or fourth or fifth in infield defense, and we're not there <laughs> uh, as the Phillies. But like you said, some of that gets thrown out, and and it becomes um, you know more of a narrow focus on game to game and and play to play. Uh, Stott and, and Boehm, if they catch the ball and they get the outs they should over on the left side, um, yeah, it sounds really simple, but it it's very kind. Of, you give up any free passes or free outs. And I, the Astros lineup, just like our lineup, they're going to make you pay. And they typically don't give away outs. And their guys throw strikes, and they've got plus stuff, and you don't want to get into their bullpen. I mean, there's, they're really, I mean they won 106 games and not by accident. Now, they didn't have to play in the NL East. They didn't have to play the Mets and the Braves as many times as we did. We aren't an 87-win team if we don't have to face red-hot Braves and Mets teams for probably 20 to 25 games this year. You know, they were, they, those they are very good teams. So, you know, are they an 87 win team? Well, yeah, it's going to be on the back of the baseball card if the Phillies had a baseball card, but they're probably more like a 92, 93 win team. If the Astros played the same schedule, maybe they're more like a 101 team, win team. But who's better? The Astros are a better team over the course of 162. We're not playing that season now. You know, this is the tournament. This is good win or go home. So, I, I it's going to look, they've had what, four days off? Who's going to come back? Who's going to be sharp? And one team's been there before. One team had a ton of swagger going, you know, into the break. So it's really, I think, those first couple innings. A couple misses, yeah. they hit into the Crawford boxes. It's going to come down to that.
0: Is it fair to say that the, uh, the layoff hurts the Phillies more because the Ashers have been experienced with layoffs? They've ended series early. They've been waiting around a lot. They're kind of used to it. They've been in four the last six World Series. Uh, it, would the layoff hurt the Phils more, you think?
1: It could. You know, especially if, uh, if they don't control the narrative by going out and if they look sharp, it won't get talked about. If they don't, that becomes the narrative. I mean, we've got a machine in Philly on the media side that's going to talk about whatever they do or don't do well. Um, so controlling that narrative is going to be a big piece.
0: All right, the two thousand and eight, you guys were like, uh, you, you clicked. The bullpen clicked. I mean, it was a, it was a five man uh, gear meshing type of thing. Uh, you get in there. You you had a lot of inherited runners that year. Your, your ERA was two point eight seven. You, I think you had like fifty one inherited runners or something. And that, that it's tough to come into a game like that, but you you survived that and and brought it to the next level. Air came in, got a couple outs from the left side, and then it went Romero and Matson, who was on fire by then. Given it, given it to the closer. Now the Phillies don't have the five reliable guys. They don't have a reliable closer. They they've got Al, uh, Alvarez and they've got Dominguez, and then you just go. Well, I don't know uh, how big of a difference is that.
1: I think it's a big difference. Um, I didn't get utilized much in the playoffs because I, you know, you really do condense it down to maybe seven, six, seven, eight outs. And in the regular season, you might ask a guy to go get two or three, but you know, you go with your hot guys, go get five outs. You get two, that limit, that that pulls the game into a manageable uh, space. So you can do it with two or three guys. I think Eflin can cover, you know, a, 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 an eight, eight or nine out stretch. I think that Robertson, this break really helps him out. He's good, and he's been here before. Um, so he might be one of those relievers that seven games later, we're talking about how big a, a role he played. Um, Dominguez is phenomenal, and if Alvarado's throwing – strikes he is they're they're filthy that's a filthy combination um but then again I mean I'm telling you the first game or two you you kind of dictate the pace you've got to get outs in those situations because it becomes a weakness if not and and you got to control that narrative
0: uh let's go back to 2008 and I want to uh, kind of compare this to Rob Thompson because Charlie You look at Charlie Manuel and you don't see brilliant strategists, but what you saw and what I saw and what you guys felt was a guy who made everybody else feel comfortable to go out with confidence and play their best. It's this kind of a special technique. And I think it's the most essential thing a manager can have where you guys relax because he believes in you and therefore you go in the field and You have that confidence because that guy believes in you and has confidence in you. And I think that's kind of the same thing that we saw with Rob Thompson here with the transition from Joe.
1: Accurate? Yeah, it's accurate. And I think it's a combination of speaking it into existence and also proving it with your actions. So, a guy has a, a, you know, if a guy's going good, he ran him back out there. If a guy had a bad outing, he ran him back out there. And that's how you gain the trust of relievers. You know, I gave up a two run double and cashed somebody's runs in. I feel awful. Give me back. And Charlie'd say, hey, you better be ready tomorrow. I'm putting you back in there. And, you know, sink or swim, we got to figure out whether you can do this or not. And I think that's what Rob just quietly, you know, he just one step at a time is like, I'm going to keep running these guys out there and see if they can handle this workload.
0: Um, with Verlander, I know he likes to get a lot of fastballs up in the strike zone. Um, and uh, so, and I look at the Phillies, and I go, you know, they're not a really a long swinging team. They haven't been in the playoffs. They they managed to get their bat on the ball, but I, I assume when Verlander looks at this, because he's so smart, he figures out what their weaknesses are. And if that high fastball is not playing, he's got he's got an arsenal he's going to be able to get you out. But do, do you see that they're going to have to lay off that high fastball or try to get on top of it by shortening up a little bit?
1: Well, I think you've got between Reese and Schwarber and Harper um JT hits the ball at the top of the zone pretty well too and you know so if they're not able to, i mean it it really depends on how the ball's spinning out of his hand if he's got that 24 25 inches of vertical hop on the ball uh, it's hard to get on top of it but if he's not where he you know was during the, end, the middle of the season meaning Verlander if he's not able to locate a ball or two above the top of the zone and be able to drop you know, the curveball or slider in, in that same plane, if he's not able to do that consistently, that ballpark and our ballpark, um, those bats play really well in those small ballparks. So, you know, we've got guys that can go oppo uh, across the board into the Crawford boxes, the lefties. I mean, so yeah, Verlander, if he's on and we're not able to get to that heater up and, and you know, and he, I'm telling you, he gets into the fourth or fifth inning. I played with him in Detroit when he was young, but I stay in touch with him. Uh, stayed in touch with him through his, uh, you know, through his rehab. With Tommy John, and he's just he's just he's thirty nine year old guy with twenty years under his belt or eighteen or whatever it is. He'll make the adjustments. It may cost him two runs to make the adjustment, but it's not going to cost him six. So we're going to have to make you know make do with it. And then Aaron's going to have to do his job and put up zeros when he scores runs. Well,
0: you were you were with him in Detroit, Verlander. Yep. yep. Okay. So what what makes him tick? How how at thirty nine is he still a power pitcher?
1: Well, he's, you know, he's got a really strong lower half and he never really got after it in the upper half, like in the weight room. Um, so he's always been really hyper mobile and really fast. You know, I, I played catch with him and every once in a while he'd throw one and he it, and it wouldn't tell you, hey, I'm going to get on this one. And it would hit like the top edge of your glove. And I played catch with Kimbrell and Lidge and all these guys. His fastball up does, it, it just doesn't land where your eyes say it's going to land. So I can't imagine trying to barrel that up. But what makes him tick is he, from the get-go, he wanted to be a Hall of Fame type guy. He wanted to be an All-Star. He never wanted to be an average big leaguer. He wanted to be the best. And early on, he handled us giving him crap about it. And, you know, but we were all on his side. But he just methodically, you know, he, he, he worked on the slider. He didn't – he was curveball, four-seam, okay changeup when he came in. And he's just put together an arsenal that is is what we're looking at now as a Cy Young in the, in the AL this year.
0: Explain to me the bond uh, a team has that wins. Like I know you, you guys, you've stayed in contact with Litch. I mean, the, that bullpen had to like for an entire season get, grow really tight, uh, and you, you, you like nobody can take away that from you guys, and you always have that bond. Ex- explain what that's about and and how it, uh, it it plays in your your life now.
1: Oh, it did, if we needed anything, um, if something happened with any of our families, um, you know, it's we were in a bunker with those guys, you know, literal and figurative. I, I can call Brad or Scott, Madsen, um, even the catchers, Chooch and Baco, and those guys during those years, and, and it's just a tight-knit group that we understand what it took to do what we did, where we did it. Um, I think we were a better team in 09 than we were in 08. We just didn't win it, um, you know, but we were there again. It's very much the same group, the same core. And so you spend that much time, and we we're all very similar age. I've said that before, but I think the importance of – you know, from Jason Wirth and Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley all the way through, you know, um, you know guys like Brad, who are you know, maybe 32, 31, 30, 29, 28. We were all in the same stages of our lives. Had young kids, you know, signing. We're in six, seven years deep into our careers uh, as far as big leaders. So you're looking at contracts that were coming up. Maybe we get paid. Uh, maybe we don't, all that stuff. But it, we were all in very similar stages of our life, and that mattered a lot. You know, I think that for the let's let's think about this as as everyday life. Um, Our wives are all in the same stage of their lives in a lot of ways. You know, they're bringing their kids to the ballpark and, you know, God rest his soul. Dave Montgomery set up the best family room scenarios you could possibly have to support the players and support their families. So I think that all of that meshes together and we're able to kind of give each other a hard time. Still, you see a picture of a guy and you're like, whoa, you know, getting scared of the treadmill. You go for a walk, you know. Um, but and, but that's just the natural ebb and flow of it. But if we really needed something, those guys would be there. I, I think opportunities have continued to rise for a lot of us um, as our kids get older and we go back into you know media for Brad and myself or or other guys that might want to coach. I mean, I think just the availability, winning does a lot. Charlie Manuel had a huge moment in my, for me personally, it was almost as if he was speaking to me. But the beauty of it was the timing of it, and it was like late August in 2008. And every day, guys are walking in thinking about what their arbitration numbers are going to be, what their free agency is going to look like. And he came in, I want to talk to everybody. And uh, he said, if you want to get paid, overpaid even, win. If you want to get that contract and get overpaid, go win. Win a championship. And you might win a couple in a row. This team's really good. But if you're worried about your arbitration, if you're worried about Free agency and it's August. We're focused on the wrong thing. Focus on winning, and you'll get you'll get what you're looking for. And he was as right as you could possibly be. Yeah. You know, from from Ryan Howard, myself, Jason, where all everybody got. We got. I got overpaid. I was average as hell. Uh, had a really good year for a couple years at the right time, and you know, got paid a little bit. So it was. You know, he nailed that.
0: Qu- quickly tell me the story uh, about the post game because uh, the celebration went on in the locker room, but then I mean, you guys continued it uh, at Pat Burrell's house. Am I right about that? Like, w- tell me that story and how you, <laughs> the Philadelphia police somehow got involved.
1: <laughs> so, trying to leave the ballpark was impossible. You weren't getting in your own vehicle. Um, buses weren't leaving. I mean, it was you know. I can I can only compare it to Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street for me. I'm from Louisiana. If the crowd moves ten feet, you move ten feet. That's what it felt like walking out. And I'm looking at my wife. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Who that? <laughs> That's awesome. Um,
0: That's so, Dan, my you know. producer Darren showing Chad Durbin. Uh, New Orleans Saints championship ring that he somehow got by Saints, producing video by, for the Saints. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. I worked for the Saints for a little bit, yeah. Chad, and I got a Super Bowl ring. And so I'll, I'll, I'll talk i talking off about it. <laughs> there, you. Never more
0: undeserved <laughs> ring than that one. But but anyway, continue the story.
1: So we're leaving the ballpark. We had to get into a squad car. You know, we, we and in honest to goodness, the squad cars. Those guys had you know they were having a blast. They've got you know world champs in their back seat. Um, and we rolled to, you know, Rittenhouse Square where Pat Burrell's uh, apartment was. And, you know, we got there, we got out, we got up there I and mean, the place was full. Um, all of us celebrating. It was probably midnight, one o'clock at that time. I, It was a blur from the time the game ended, you know, the celebration on the field in the clubhouse and then spills into a squad car into Pat Burrell's place. But at some point. When you when you get after it for seven eight hours straight, you run out of alcohol, and <laughs> and I think you had guys you know kind of what do we do? Well, I mean let's, we got to get in touch with local bars, local you know grocery stores. I mean, what do we need to do? We need we need to find some beer. We need to find some some hard alcohol, and and ultimately I I was you know. I was hard focused on that, but I was also, you know, I got family there. You know, who's going to take my then 18-month-old or 15-month-old, who's going to take him back to the house? And so you're like, oh, wait, we're out of – what do we can do? We're out of alcohol. So anyway, in Pat's place, which was a big old full floor on – you know, he had a bunch of money. But you looked and there was an elevator. And the elevator opened up and I see, you know – pd walking in with big cardboard boxes probably three feet by 18 inches with you know n- not your typical fifth of alcohol but the the big magnums and stuff and and beer and everything and, and look they- they're Philly, you know pd all the way but they're also smiling ear to ear because i mean they're going to tell though they're telling that story somewhere too right now today you know yeah, if they were doing this that's again, you know, did,
0: did any of them linger and imbibe with you guys
1: <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I know they had a job to do, but they didn't want to go out to that mob. You know? uh, <laughs> we'll get, uh, we'll get we're, we're a to that point. We're talking to Chad,
0: it. Chad Durbin, uh, before of course, former Philly uh, on the Mike Misnelli podcast, Bet Rivers. Uh, Chad, last, last uh, question. I, I remember when you were playing, you were a bit of an entrepreneur. You had started some kind of a scouting service, if I remember. Is that yes. still going on? And what other things do you have going besides baseball commentary and, and staying in the game?
1: Well, you, I did. I'd showcase you. Uh, we were a little ahead, Oh uh, six, oh seven. The, the iPhone, oh seven was when the iPhone came out, if you really, if we think about, you know, mobile applications and how freely we use those now. But that was the idea is that a recruiter, you know, whether it be in a recruiting coordinator at a Division one school, softball, baseball, whatever sport, um, is sitting in the airport and, and flipping through profiles, and looking at metrics, we all know what those are now. But in 2006 and seven, nobody was talking about that stuff. We we so we went, and obviously 2008, right where we were raising money, uh, financial collapse, and all that stuff. So we we you know we went through that whole process. But I went out to Menlo Park. We did pitch decks and presented in Philly, presented in um, you know uh, Paul Martino, who is a you know he runs Bullpen Capital. He's the general partner. Uh, he's got nine different funds now. He's a Philly native, huge Philly fan, huge Saints fan too. Because Jim Moore went down there from the USFL down to Saints territory, so he was a Saints fan and a Phillies fan, and we just kind of merged, um, you know, our, our fan, um, you know, bases. And, and he brought us out to those opportunities. We never got funded, but we—it's uh, kind of what you look at when you look at rivals or max preps and everything. Uh, perfect game, if we're talking about baseball, that's exactly what we knew was coming. We weren't wrong. We just timed it wrong. Yeah, and, uh, yeah
0: it's amazing. You were ahead of the curve with that because it's all over the place now, this type of services.
1: So I help out with – I do I do some pitching stuff, um, you know, for a, a, a large organization that's on the amateur side. But we have, you know, pro- probably two or three kids drafted every year. It's Knights Nation Baseball. We're located down in Louisiana, but we're nine states deep. We have – they can do all the travel baseball that, that you kind of have to do in today's marketplace. Um, you know, my son is a 15-year-old. He's he's, he's going to be a pretty good player, um, throws the ball well. But I've, I've been – you know what happened is I was anti-metrics coming out of my career. Not anti, but it just – I didn't need it. I, may, I think I do now if I look back. I think my career would have extended some. But from a pitch arsenal standpoint, from learning what you do well, what you don't do well, when you're on a – when you're looking at stat cast – or you're looking at TrackMan, which is a a 3D radar technology in baseball, Um, you you know what you do well and what you don't do well. And helping guys out from the pro level all the way down to elite high school guys, that helps them get recruited. It helps them, you know, so I do that stuff, um, do the media stuff. Um, I've been part of bullpen capital on the venture side for a long time, and I really enjoy, um, you know, seeing some of the pitch decks that get thrown in front of us, some of the ideas. Uh, But, you know, my my oldest is 15, my younger two are 10 and nine now. And I kind of said, right around 45, I want to get back out there. I want to get back out there, whether it's on the coaching side, whether it's on the media side, uh, whether it's on the entrepreneurial side, and I am pushing in all those directions. I really enjoy talking baseball. I really enjoy simplifying it for people. Um, even, even guys that are really good at this game, maybe not, may not see it the way that I see it, and I can help them out. So um, and we've got some good guys down here. I, Aaron Nola is not a big tech guy. So you just let him go do his thing, but you've got Kevin Gossman who come, you know, you've got a lot of really talented guys around and I'm, I, I get excited to work with those guys and, and, you know, throw my knowledge. I had to learn a lot. Cause I was, like I said, I was average as hell. So I had to, I had to learn on the go um, a little more than the guys that were a little, uh, a little better than
0: me. So is your 15 year old pitcher?
1: He is. He's uh, you know, he's, Six foot tall, 140 pounds. I was 155 pounds, soaking wet out of high school through '94. You don't have to be 220 pounds to throw gas, and um, you know. So he, but he, everything moves right, and he's 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 he throws easy. You know the metrics, yes. Easy gas. He throws uh-huh. the ball. He's touching 84, 85. Nothing crazy for a 15 year old, but he does it. It jumps on you. It's uh, even playing catch with him. It's it, he makes it look easy. And he really hasn't, you know, I don't do lessons with him or anything. I kind of leave him be because he's my kid. Um, but, yeah, he does everything really well, um, projects really well. And I just try to, you know, he loves the game. He loves playing. It. He doesn't – I'm going to the game tomorrow, um, heading over there tonight. My 10-year-old's in it. He wants it. He's he's going to be wearing the Philly jersey, a Bryce Harper, you know, Yeti, you know, that type of stuff. <laughs> he, he's, he's into this stuff. Um, my, my 15 year old loves it, but he does, he's not a fan in that way. And it's weird. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I was still playing while he was young. Yeah. So he's yeah. got a little bit of that. Yeah. He, yeah. he said the next yeah. time he goes to a big league park, he wants to pitch in it. I'm like, well, you got, you got a long way to go. Big guy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it ain't that easy. You don't just tap you know, tap your heels together. What's your arm
0: like these days? 456 games, 14 seasons. And you, you, you threw a lot of bullpen. Obviously you're up and down the whole bit. Is, is your, is your arm okay? Can you still throw
1: it? I, I can't throw it hard, but I can still throw it. I have no pain um, in my shoulder elbow. Um, I actually, when, when when new technology comes out or new theories and applications of weighted balls and, you know, um, you know it, it, now they have some you know, a bigger, 5% bigger, 5% smaller baseballs that help you with location and command. I go do it. And, you know, I'm 82, 83, maybe touch 85 now. My kid throws harder than me now, um, but, you know, still, you know, when I'm trying to tell somebody how to spin the ball, sometimes playing catch with somebody that can spin it too is really the only way for you to see it, feel it. And, and, you know, the metrics help. I mean, you get the the, the iPad pro out or you see the, the stat cast data and you're able to see it while you're doing it, but you know, yeah, my arm feels good. I could throw the heck out of some BP. Look at my, the back of my card. I hit a lot of barrels. You know, so I can get out there and hit more barrels throwing batting practice now. Uh, but, yeah, that's uh, – you know, I was surprised. I didn't throw a ton. I didn't, I didn't lift. I didn't do all that stuff. But uh, um, I, what I wanted to do was be able to play catch with both my kids as they advanced yeah. through high school and everything. I can't, I, he can throw in a football field. I can throw it about 85 yards now. So he's got me beat there. His ball just carries different than mine. Does.
0: That is awesome. Chad, this has been a pleasure, man. I really appreciate you doing this. We had a lot of fun uh, talking to you about a lot of different things. Uh, Chad Durbin, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, uh, hopefully you listen to this at the Mike Misnelli podcast. And, and we've been doing it every day to follow this World Series. And we're going to be back Monday with a recap of games one and two. Uh, as you get ready to play in in Philadelphia. Chad, thanks a million, man. We appreciate it.
1: Mike, I appreciate it.
0: All right, that's been the Mike Missanelli podcast for today. Everybody have a great rest of the day, and uh, let's go Phillies. We'll follow it this weekend, and we'll talk about it on Monday. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.